We're in a series called The Power to Change, and uh, I had in mind for the worship team to be playing behind me as I did this reading. Um, so I think they're going to just have to come back. Come on, worship team, come on. Because this reading takes us into a worship setting in heaven, and uh, so I'm not sure which song you're going to choose. Um, maybe he's the only one. This is the good one. And the reading essentially is this. You just start when you're ready. And I'm, I'm going to pick up a little bit earlier in verse 14, because quite a hectic reading. To the angel or messenger of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. What an introduction. The Amen. The faithful and true witness. The ruler, the arche, the, the, the very beginning and governor of creation. And then sadly, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. But you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind. I counsel you to come buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see because those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And to the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald, emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. 
They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were burning. These are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. And also in front of this throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Father, we want our eyes to be opened. We want solve, solve from the very hands of Jesus to be rubbed so that we can see. Lord, we want our shame to be covered. The white robes of heaven, the gift that Jesus gives to fully clothe us. Lord, we want the gold that is refined in a fire, completely pure and given by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, team. Now you can sit down. The power to change. And today, in a sense, is a turning point. So I don't want to spend too much time on the recap. We started in Matthew 15. I don't know if you remember. Jesus spoke about how things come from the heart. We saw in Matthew 18 that we... We, we, we learn to deal with stuff, not just through repentance, but through forgiving. And we forgive people who not just sinned against us, but even caused us to sin. These things, the repentance, the forgiveness, unlock God's power. It's not our power. It's God's power that gets released. You see, the discovery of all this is that the power to change then does not depend on factors beyond our responsibility and influence. Remember that? Literally, there's always something you can start to do. We access and release God's power when we accept this responsibility. And in the language of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And we looked at, for example, how this kept David safe in a very unsafe relationship with King Saul. How he was able to resist being conditioned by the evil coming at him. And we've examined also the legal basis of this power to repent and to forgive. Its authority comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. This is how God removes guilt and condemnation. This is how forgiveness is not a further injustice. It actually becomes the extension and the seed of great righteousness and justice. So we've heard some of the testimonies during this time. But we're coming, as it were, to a turning point. The power to change. The power to change. Our passage shows us something of the path forward. You see, if I could draw on the imagery of Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus talks about binding up the strong man, cleaning up a house, and then filling it with good things. Well, you see, we do need to bind up the strong man. We do need to get rid of the dark forces that want to control us. But then Jesus goes on to make it clear that we need to fill up the house with good things. Like it's not enough just in the image of Nehemiah, to remove all the rubble. 
The city will not be safe until you have built the wall. Or in Matthew 12, it's not enough just to clean the house, clean the house, clean the house. Who's going to live in the house? If the house is empty, it's just waiting to be occupied. What are we putting in its place? In other words, how do we not just live by looking at the things we ought to say no to? How can we awaken a bigger yes? What are the things we really want on the plus side? You see, change is not just about dealing with that stuff which Jesus has secured the legal right to deal with. But Jesus has secured the legal right to do more than just deal with the dark side. And that's where our reading this morning takes us. What do we put in its place? What are we going to say yes to? Not limited to just cleaning things up, as important as that is. Listen, you can't fill a house with good things if it's still full of junk. You can't build a wall where there's a pile of rubble. Absolutely both are completely essential. But you don't stop after the spring clean. <laughs> and God really wants to blow our minds with what he wants to bring into the house. Which takes us to our reading. Laodicea is a city in modern day Turkey. Well back then it was Asia Minor. And it stood at a junction of an important trade route that ran more or less. There were two trade routes, uh, north-south and east-west in the district of Phrygia. I don't know what Phrygia but it sounds like a name that you could use, you know, when you're exasperated or something. Um, and uh, like many towns at major trade route crossroads, they profited greatly from the traffic. So there wasn't like a great deal of uh, natural resources. I mean, there were farmlands around. There's some natural uh, sort of like, uh, level terrain in between all these mountains. But they became a banking center, which meant they became very wealthy. All this trade was passing through. And then, you know, as the traders came through and they needed to get rid of their stock and they were traveling far, they would sell for those prices. And then they were sort of like halfway, you know, across the land, uh, headed towards Ephesus on one side, back towards the Middle East on the other. And so they were wealthy. The town also boasted a fine medical school. People came from far to train as doctors, and they specialized in ophthalmology, the healing of eyes. And, uh, and they specialized especially in a salve that they would make. You'd get a powder, they'd, rub, they'd mix up the powder, and that powder was good for the eyesight. And then the local farmers, thirdly, had developed a particular breed of black sheep whose wool was regarded as being like top quality. And it seems to have generated a whole fashion, and so all around there were people wanting to get Laodicean garments because they were made of the best wool. And so these highly sought-after garments made the merchant, the farmers rich, the merchants rich, all these traders. So there's natural trade coming from elsewhere, there's this school of healing, etc., whatever, and then there is this wealth. And so built on, but there was one big challenge they faced. In spite of these natural resources, they had a water problem, like almost perennial. 
So there was a river that flowed through, but um, the river Lycus. And uh, Palm Wright gives a bit of a summary on the archaeology and the geography. But this river was not perennial. It didn't flow all the time. And so sometimes they'd literally run out of fresh water. So it was uh, a problem for them. But nearby, there was a city called Hierapolis. And, uh, and that had hot springs. And the water flowed over down a, a waterfall. And the waterfalls were absolutely magnificent because of all the chemicals inside this water that came from deep under the earth. But the water had all, and so the chemical deposits, and they dug canals. You can still find them to this day. And they are white deposits from all the chemicals that come out of these hot springs that flow. But the problem is two things. The one is that as it flows in Arapolis, it's great, it's hot. You want to go, it's medicinal. Um, but by the time that water source had traveled about five kilometers, it was lukewarm. And also, it was so strong in chemicals, the only thing that that water was good for in terms of consumption was if you needed to purge. If you needed to get sick, you drank that water because it made you puke. And then there was another place nearby called Colossae, and we know this from uh, the Bible, letter to the Colossians, they went too far away. And, and they had a beautiful, beautiful water source. And it was ice and cold. And it would sort of like flow. And they realized we need drinking water as well. So they dug another channel because they were rich. They could make their own plan. And so they dug another canal. And this canal brought the water. Except that as it ran in their stone channels, the heat, the Turkish so like terrain and the heat there near the tropics would bake into those rocks. And by the time the water reached Laodicea, guess what? It was lukewarm. Like pretty much anything they did ended up being lukewarm. Does that help you understand something of how Jesus takes almost their physical, geographical, historical, economic thing and there are people where Jesus commends in some of these other letters where the situation is the exact opposite of what they are doing. So there's a city that is described as having Satan's throne. And yet that church is not bowing to that throne. That church is not being influenced. So it's not automatic that the place you're in defines the church you are. But sadly for Laodicea, place they were in defined the kind of church they had become. Lukewarm. Enough to make anyone sick. Like literally. Ah! They've really messed up. They get the strongest possible rebuke from Jesus himself. You make me want to vomit. I have to, that's, that's literally a, a, a permissible translation. Like, spew you out, a little bit of King James-ishness reached the modern translations. Surely this church has no future. Surely this church should get no promises from Jesus. 
Surely this church should get no invitation to a path to change. Not so. This church probably gets the greatest of all the promises. Like, it doesn't matter where you're starting from. It doesn't matter where you're starting from. The gospel of Jesus carries the power to change. Even if you've messed it up, the gospel of Jesus carries the power to change. You see, this church that gets the strongest correction also gets the greatest invitation. They invited to share not only a table with Jesus, but to sit on his throne. Like, this takes me back to one of my favorite doctrines. You won't find it in any systematic theology book. You know, some people talk about the doctrine of irresistible grace, which means God does whatever he wants, got nothing to do with you. I don't really believe that. I'd have to qualify that in a whole lot of ways. But the doctrine I do believe is irresponsible grace. Does God not know the losers to whom he is being kind? Like how is it that this church gets these promises? Because the gospel carries the power to change. But before they can share in this table... Before they can sit in his throne, before they even call to repent, they have to do something. They have to be earnest. It's time to take your situation seriously. It's time to face it. It's time to name it. It's time to have a good look at it. You have to stop your casual, comfortable, convenient approach. The greatest challenge is that these guys have been trying their best to make their faith fit their context, and their context was convenience and comfort. And taking care of themselves. Laodicea was so wealthy that when earthquake hit this place in AD 61, normally, and the place gets flattened, imperial help you know there'd be a state of emergency and outside assistance came that whole valley received outside assistance from the roman empire because of a very severe earthquake that hit them in AD 61 except laodicea they were so proud that they said caesar you can keep your money we're quite fine without you and they rebuilt at their own expense they didn't want anyone to say that they saved them and helped them. You know, it's hard when you're that resourced. When literally nothing can knock you flat. To look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Oh, I'm so hungry and thirsty for you. I can't do this without you. And so Jesus says, be earnest. Those whom I love, I rebuke, I discipline. So be earnest. I've got a cousin called Ernest. I don't know how he reads this verse. But uh, <laughs> the first thing it says is, be earnest. Like, 
It's time to take this seriously. Now, this involves both intention and action. You see, we've confused aspiration with intention. I mean, of course we want things to be right. Aspiration. But we're not making a plan to get there. Intention. Like, it's one thing to have a wish. It's another thing to have a plan. Something to take yourself towards that which God is stirring you towards. And they just, well, of course they would love it if God was to do nice things for them and to keep them comfortable and to keep them wealthy and everything like that. But their aspiration to be good had no intention, no plan, no training, no discipline. That's one thing to want to win the game. It's another thing to train long and hard hours, week after week and month after month, so that you're ready for the game. You can wish to win. <laughs> it's not going to help. Or you can train. See the difference between aspiration and intention? Intention develops a clear path and plan. We've confused aspiration with intention, and we've confused admiration with action. I mean, we just admire, we think of all, as awesome those who are doing something, but we can't shake off our desire for convenience. So listening to Mark Sayers, an Australian pastor, described how some of his people were posting on social media how awesome it was to belong to a church that feeds the poor at six o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter. People were posting and everything. And yet at six o'clock in the morning on the middle of winter, they were lying in bed, making the post, <laughs> getting some me time, pastor. They admired those, the few who were doing that. But they didn't act. See, there's this huge difference between like Ernest says, this is going to become action. Be earnest and repent. Now repent and forgive. This is how it cleans the house. And this is what opens the door. Here I am, says Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat that person. No, I will eat with that person. <laughs> and they with me. You know, spending time with Jesus at the table is what fills your house. Spending time with Jesus in communion. You know, dining in that culture was a way of literally connecting to another person, seeing the other person sharing life, being together. When Jesus says, we're going to do a meal together, it's that we are in community together. Thank you, Enid, for helping us think of that. Spending time with Jesus is what fills the house with good things. Do I want to experience the power to change? And yes, that was the kicker. Revelation 3, verse 20. There is a door on earth. There is a door in us. 
that we must first open. It is the door that welcomes Jesus, connects with him, communes with him, does life with him. And as we open wide to Jesus, he comes to sit with us. He comes to our table and sits with us in our place, in our body, in our home. There is a seat on earth, a table in your life. If you will open up, Jesus will sit with you and he will then, next verse, take you to sit with him. You see, if you let Jesus in here, he lets you in there. He takes you to sit with him, to the one who is victorious. Very next verse, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was, past tense, victorious, and sat down with my Father on His throne. So Jesus has won a victory. Where is this? This is the cross. This is the resurrection. There's a victory, past tense. Jesus has won. When I open the door to my life, I suddenly see there's a victory that He has won, past tense. The victory is already 2,000 years old, and now I begin to sit on the throne of that victory. I am drawn, when I open my life, to Jesus, into his life. He's not just coming to me, I'm, I'm drawn to him. But there's more. You see, if we open the earthly door to him, remember Jesus, in rebuking them for those three things, offered them a replacement. So for their money, he offers them gold refined by fire. For their fancy black wool, he offers them white garments of righteousness. And for their blinded eyes he, and their fancy ointment, which didn't really make them see at all, he offers the ability to see. You see... As John understands this and he, he receives these promises from the Lord, then he says, and then I looked. <laughs> he could see, he could see something open there for him all along. That which had seemed closed, that which had seemed shut off. With eyes that are touched by the souls that Jesus gives, you can see and open him. There is already a door standing open in him. So chapter 4 shows us that by just the first few verses. You know, he says, I heard the voice, like a trumpet. I'd heard it at first. It said, come up here. And at once I was in the spirit. when you hear the voice and you give yourself to being in the same spirit that is in Jesus, immediately you come up here. Immediately. Like if you listen to the voice and if you let, and now the interesting thing with this idea of the, the spirit, of course it's a capital S. The spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. But in the original Greek there was no there were, there were no small case actually. They were all just written in capitals. And so, we interpret small and big case, and you actually meant to mix them up. 
So it's not just as it were this person of the Holy Spirit. Of course it's true, the Spirit of Jesus. But you know when we talk about a team spirit, what, we're talking about an atmosphere, we're talking about something that defines it, we're talking about what's the atmosphere of Jesus? What's the thing that defines the environment around me? So he has a important theology sidebar. I'm not going to spend too long here. But what John is seeing is not in some distant, far away galaxy. There is a door open in heaven. Heaven is not spatial. There and earth here. Okay. It's not how the Bible sees it. Heaven is the sphere of God right here, right now. In fact, heaven is the atmosphere you live in, literally. So you can either live unaware of an open door and the atmosphere around you. You can live as though heaven is closed and that this is just oxygen and everything else around you. Or you can live as though God is right here, right now. Which, by the way, is his Hebrew name. Yahweh, I am always right here, right now. It's the simplest way to understand that name. Heaven is always right here, right now. And in Jesus, the door is here, right here, right now. And it is open for us. Open for us. Closer than the atmosphere I breathe like Jacob waking up and realize I've been sleeping under an open heaven. So what Jesus creates. Second theology sidebar. Although he's told, I will show you what is to happen in the future, that's a reference to the whole thing. He starts in the present in heaven. He's not snatched from 90 AD or whenever you want to date this, this letter into, like, you know, when's the world going to end? Who's a conspiracy theorist? 2023 and a half, you know. He's not snatched from then to then. He simply moves into the realm of God in which he gets to see the whole span of history, by the way, starting at creation. So he actually sees the past and the future. He's not you know, being raptured or something like that. It is a picture of how the future comes. That's actually what chapter 4 and 5 is about. It is a picture of heaven and earth, people in the presence of God. This perfect representation of 24 elders representing Old Testament and New Testament, 12 tribes and 12 apostles being brought together now fully and complete in the presence of God. God's people in His presence. And yes, they are worshipping, but there are rumblings and there are peals of thunder and incredible things are happening. It is a picture of how the future is shaped in the present moment, in the presence of God. 
I will show you how the future heavens. Power to change. I will show you how the future happens. Right now, the world is being changed by people who know how to sit with Jesus both on earth and in heaven. Does it make sense? Revelation 3.20 Open the door. He comes in. You know how to sit with Jesus both on earth and in heaven. The world is being changed by people who know how to sit with Jesus on earth and sit with Jesus in heaven. By people who see the door standing open. Who understand that heaven is not just one day far, far away. Heaven is right here, right now. All God's resources are present. By people who will hear the call in the present to come up here. Who will live and pray from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. Bringing the presence of what we see on the earth. And taking our cries like the martyred saints do. Like you think heaven is perfect? There are people complaining in heaven. They're saying, how long, oh God? How long? And we get to march with those whose blood has been shed. And we walk into heaven like we did earlier with heaven. And we say, how long, oh God? And we mourn. Because we carry earth into heaven. And yet at the same time as we've done this morning... We carry heaven into earth. We, this is how the future happens. Now we're beginning to really understand the power to change. No longer are we, as we saw in the first week of the series, simply objects being changed by behaviorism or psychology or sociology. We're not the objects of change. We're the agents of change. And nothing in all human wisdom can understand the power of this plan. If we will open the door. And let Jesus change us. You see, opening the door to him changes everything else. Repositions you. We sit with him, we listen, we pray with him. When we open the door, listen, this is how we fill the house. It's how we fill the house with good and beautiful things. Michelle shared a picture last week of this bandwagon and like this. Everyone having a ticket, everyone being able to get on board, but you had to choose. I can tell you, I know what it is to stand on the outside of a move of God. I do. Simply because I got some bad information early on from people who didn't trust what they couldn't understand. And so I didn't trust what history has since shown to be a clear clear move of God. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people getting saved. I know what it is to not use the ticket. I don't want to do that again. 
don't want to do that again. I don't want to miss the opportunity to open the door. I don't want to miss the opportunity to step into what God is doing. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. The sovereign God of heaven, the arche of creation, like the ruler, the origin of everything you see, will not force himself upon you. Even in your complacency and your convenience or your self-provision or your self-protection, he will not force himself on you. The sovereign God, the king of heaven, who has a green rainbow, all of his own. I don't know how you get a green rainbow. What's a green rainbow? I mean, we read it this morning. Did you see it? And a rainbow like an emerald. <laughs> you didn't see it. This sovereign God has got his own rainbow. Knocks at the door of our lives. Says, will you let me in? Let's pray together. Maybe you want to stand. John said when he heard that voice, when he heard that voice, invited him to come up here. Then he says, at once, I was in this spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Spirit of Jesus. Come, atmosphere of Jesus, here on the earth. And folks, we're creating space to respond. I want to invite you to respond, however you need to. Coming to the front is going to help you. And this is not a salvation message, although if you need to give your life to Jesus, now is a pretty good time. This was to a church that had got comfortable and self-reliant. And he says, I love you. So I challenge you. I love you. So I call you. Come up here. Open the door. Come up here. Open the door. There is a door on earth that if you open it, you will see a door in heaven. There is a door on earth. If you open it, you will see a door in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. This might be new for you. I want to invite you to say, pray with me. Pray with me. Cindy used the picture earlier on. That we don't want to leave the table and pack away the dishes if someone's still eating. So Lord, we want to come to your table. We want to receive all, all, all that you've got. <laughs>